0: Without further ado, I'd like to have Martha Graber come and talk to us about uh, Dr. Stanton. As you know, Martha is an associate professor of medicine in the section of uh, renal hypertension in our Department of Medicine, and she directs, she's the medical director of the inpatient hemodialysis unit and home dialysis. Martha. Good morning, welcome. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Robert Stanton. Uh, Dr. Stanton graduated magna cum laude from Harvard and received his MD from Hahnemann Medical College. He was a resident and chief resident at Oregon Health Sciences. Um, He returned to Harvard as a renal fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital and was then a postdoctoral fellow at Tufts in Dr. Lewis Cantley's laboratory. He again returned to Harvard where he has remained. He is currently principal investigator on vascular cell biology, associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and chief of the kidney and hypertension section at Joslin Diabetes Center. Um, Dr. Stanton's laboratory research is focused on glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, which enzyme he has demonstrated to be essential for cell survival and particularly to play a central role in the generation of diabetic complications as well as numerous other functions. He has held multiple NIH and major funder grants and awards and is the author of over three dozen original articles and two numerous to count book chapters, reviews and editorials. As if this were not sufficient, Dr. Stanton is an active clinician and teacher and has a national and international reputation as a medical educator. (laughs) He's a recipient of numerous awards, including several visiting professorships and a Lifetime Achievement Award for Clinical Excellence in Teaching from Harvard Medical School. Dr. Stanton is a member of many august societies, including our own beloved American Society of Nephrology and, intriguingly, the Cambridge Entomological Society. Uh, I could go on, but I won't. In an effort to allow Dr. Stanton sufficient time to give his medical grand rounds today, it remains only to welcome him to Dartmouth-Hitchcock.
1: Thank you, uh, it's all working fine, I guess. Thank you very much, my mother would be very proud. That's, <laughs> so, uh, Thank you, Dr. Rustin, and I'm very honored and thrilled to be here. I'm wearing green, by the way. You see that? Uh, <laughs> I just want you to notice that before I start. <clears throat> Turn that off. So I'm going to spend, and I'll keep checking my watch to uh, make sure I'm on time. If you want to stop me in the middle of this and say something, I feel free at Harvard. I'm used to that. So uh, go right ahead. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, I have nothing to disclose about this. Um, so we're going to cover these issues. Uh, what's going on about mechanisms of diabetic kidney disease uh, treatments and, and novel treatment trials and things like this to give you an idea of where we are at this point. But first of all, let me tell you about the problem. So this I'm showing you here is 1992. It's a number of people on dialysis. Uh, and I'm showing you this because there's a legitimate argument about the number of people with chronic kidney disease. But there's no argument about the number of people on dialysis. You can count them. So uh, what you can see is at this point, if you notice, the highest number is about 1,200 per million. It's not huge. Lowest number is this. And there are certain areas of the country that have more than others. Uh, and this is important from a diabetic kidney disease. It's important from a kidney disease standpoint. So from a diabetic uh, kidney, the reasons that the areas have higher numbers, anybody know? Native Americans. Thank you. <laughs> Who said, Whoever said Native American. Oh. Native Americans, right? So Arizona, New Mexico, Florida, North Dakota, South Dakota are Native Americans. Uh, How about South Texas? Hispanic Hispanic population. So actually kidney disease and diabetic kidney disease is not an equal opportunity player. The groups that have the highest rates are African Americans and uh, Native Americans then and Hispanic population and Asians, especially equatorial Asians. So everybody's feeling good in 1992. This is 10 years later. Uh. So I had some person say to me, oh, my gosh, the American Indians are moving everywhere. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> so uh,
1: short of that, uh, that's not really the case. Uh, so this has been an explosion of dialysis, in case you didn't know. This number is still 1,200. Now, this is the most recent. The lowest number is now 1,400. The highest number is 2,500. This has been an explosion of dialysis patients. So, this is becoming a huge problem. This is driven without mystery here by diabetic kidney disease, primarily. And this is shown here over the years. What's of great interest to the rest of the world, and when I've talked to people from China and India, is China and India are somewhere back here. Or that is, they're closer to that 1992 part of the story, and they are going to be in huge troubles over the next 20 years and, uh, from people either dying or busting their budgets or some other issue related in there. So this is the most recent data. This is USRDS. If you're really interested in anything you care to know about kidney disease, you can look up usrds.org. It has all sorts of data. And um, basically, now, as I said, this is the estimate that about 15% of the population have uh, kidney disease. The reason I said this is controversial is because the number is less than 60 GFR and albuminuria. Now, our goal in life is to get to a GFR of less than 60 because as we age, kidney function declines. And if we live long enough, we'll all have a GFR of less than 60. So calling somebody at 80 years old with a GFR of 50 chronic kidney disease is a bit of a stretch, although that really is their GFR, but to say you got there because you lived long enough. So that's why the number is a bit controversial. Nevertheless, that's what's used. Now, think about the numbers of dialysis patients that keep rising. Most people will die before they get there of their heart disease. And this is the number of actual people. 0.2% of the population actually have either a kidney dialysis or transplant. Death rates on dialysis in the United States are 15 to 20% per year. So I don't know what the exact number of people who with chronic kidney disease is, But if you have 15 to 20% death rates per year and you have, most people don't even get the dialysis, the numbers are pretty high. Now, this next issue is what's got the government concerned. $40 billion, 7% of the budget, was spent on the dialysis patients and transplant. That doesn't include, if you lump together, and this becomes a political issue, if you lump together heart disease, kidney disease, and diabetes in the group. Now the heart, heart disease people take it for the heart association, the diabetes, endocrine, whatever, but really they all mesh together. Then you're talking 100 billion or more of costs just from this. In fact, if, when GFR goes down or albumin levels go up, heart disease starts to go up dramatically and very closely tied to that. And that's very important for as clinicians to remember that. So. Moving away from the demographics, I'm going to talk about the treatment issues that I mentioned in the main talk. So, this is current treatment for diabetic kidney disease. It's very complex. You lower the blood pressure, you lower this uh, less than 7% uh, glucose control, and in generally lower the urine albumin if it's greater than 300 at least. The reason I mentioned that is when urine albumin levels, normal urine albumin levels, are less than 30, albumin creatinine ratio. In general, between 30 and 300, the risk of progression is a bit low. It's not very clear. But above 300, the risk of progression of kidney disease is clear. But if it's above 30, the risk of cardiovascular disease is significant. Cardiovascular risk goes up as soon as protein levels go up, no matter what. So this is current treatment. So this is a view from not my slide, somebody else, but good talk over mechanisms of disease You're going to see this slide again and again. I'm going to refer to this as ways of people have been addressing new problems. So we have a huge problem. This is driven by diabetes. Do we have new treatments? I can tell you now, I'm not going to give you, wow, we do have new treatments. But I can give you at least where it's going and what are the pluses and minuses, treatments you probably have heard of or not heard of. So one issue is mitochondrial ROS. This was pushed initially by Michael Brownlee from New York, And Michael, in about year 2000, published a thing that diabetic patients were overproducing reactive oxygen species, superoxide molecules. Superoxide was affecting pathways in the glycolytic pathway and then was causing basically everything you see below that, all the advanced glycation polyols, hexosamines, protein kinases, and you could put a unifying theory together with that. So there have been efforts to try to change that. I'd say the efforts right now are... It's very plus-minus if they're working. So the pathways involved, there's advanced glycation end products. I'm I'm not going to talk about a lot of these in too much detail. Advanced glycation end products are non-enzymatic glucose attaching to proteins. So if you take glucose and you put protein in a a glass of water and wait overnight, the glucose will stick to the protein, and that's called a, a Maillard reaction. That is, no enzymes involved, and when you go home on Christmas or Thanksgiving and have a honey-glazed ham, you're eating one enormous advanced glycation end product. So, (laughs) enjoy. (laughs) And uh, so this sticky proteins uh, will end up, uh, cause all sorts of issues. The efforts to try to block formation or block their effects have been variable. Polyol, I'm not going to go into it, involves use of a different pathway called aldose reductase. Efforts to block aldose reductase have not been successful. And protein kinase C has been, protein kinase C beta-1 in particular, has been said by a lot of people. Efforts to block protein kinase C with various drugs have also not been successful so far. So, and lipids have been brought up over and over again. There seems to be association, also not successful. now, When you look at the glomerular capillary, going back about 30, 40 years, uh, where I did my fellowship with Barry Brenner and other people and other people, they looked at pressures using micropuncture studies and found that the animals with diabetes had higher flow rates and higher pressures inside the glomerulus. So the theory was proposed that you should, um, if you lower the pressure, you'll protect the glomerulus. And that's what, uh, so glomerular hypertension was the idea. So then the idea was, could you do that? And that's where ACE inhibitors and ARBs, ACE inhibitors block uh, angiotensin II production. Angiotensin receptor blockers block their action. uh, The angiotensin II works on the efferent arterial. Blood flow comes into the glomerulus. Blood flow goes out, and and the efferent arterial is being controlled by angiotensin II, up and down. And so that's what the ACE inhibitors came from. So before moving into newer things, I want to mention a few things about ACE inhibitors and ARBs that you may or may not be aware of. So I have a question, you can answer or not, but most people say nothing. But anyway, ACE inhibitors or ARBs should be given to diabetic patients to prevent the development of diabetic kidney disease. True. I, true. I got a false here though, shaking the head no i got everybody else quiet, which is normally what happens. <laughs> if you had little clickers, you wouldn't be so, right? So uh, most people, when I ask the question, about 70%, 80% say true. They should be, which would imply that you have to give an ACE and ARB to everybody with diabetes, by the way. Uh, even though only about 30 or 40% of people develop kidney disease, you don't know who's going to get it yet, so you would give it to everybody. So uh, Mike Maurer from the University of Minnesota did an interesting study back in 2009 in the New England Journal. And what he did was he took, these are a couple hundred people, split them into uh, these groups. Uh, ARB, Losartan, uh, ACE inhibitor, and allopril, placebo, same blood pressure control, followed them over five years. And what you can see is that there was no difference. These were people thought to be at risk. They were not kidney disease, thought to be at risk. So people did develop signs of kidney disease, that is albuminuria. Now I want to tell you, I'm going to come back to albuminuria periodically. Albuminuria is a weak Marker of kidney disease. Most nephrologists do not jump and say, oh, protein went up. That means X, Y, Z. It's suggestive things might get worse, but it's not definitive. And you can have worsening kidney disease with any level of albumin, and the albumin level could change or not change. Now, if albumin levels continue to go up, that's a good sign things are going to get worse. But that's about the only good sign. Now, you go, so you look at this part and go, so what? Because albumin is not the biggest marker. He did something else. He biopsied everybody on day one, everybody, normal kidney function. And five years later, he biopsied them all again, 200 and some people. Nobody had any complications, by the way. Um, It's important, I'm gonna come back to that at the end, (laughs) because there's an issue about that, one issue about the the biopsies. So, and I, I won't go into detail, but he looked at mesangial fractional volume, which is the earliest sign of, kidney disease changed, there was no difference. In other words, the ACE and the ARB, shaking your head, no, don't do it, the uh, ACE-ARB did not make a difference in the earliest development of diabetic kidney disease in type 1 patients. Now, there was a type 2 study with, called the Benedict trial where they gave uh, Trandolapril, which looked like it proved it was improving things. But this group they'll compared studies. So if you look over here, all these studies show ACE-ARBs are fantastic to prevent. These studies show ACE-ARBs are not so fantastic. These are a lot bigger. If you look down here, look at the starting blood pressures here, and look at the starting blood pressures here, and I'd argue blood pressure control is a pretty good thing. So in other words, if you had good blood pressure control from the start, you probably didn't see much benefit of ACE-ARB. If you didn't have good blood pressure control from the start, you probably got a benefit from the ACE-ARB. So I have nothing, I've had pharmaceutical, you don't like ACE-ARB? I'd say, uh, it's, they've done an incredible job, these companies, of selling this drug. So I was reviewing a paper for Journal General, General Internal Medicine looking and it was giving a, it was a complex algorithm based on all sorts of blood pressure medications, and um, 99% of the people were on an ACE or an ARB. I mean, it's like they, the, nobody knew that there was another drugs out there that could be used. So I have nothing against ACRB, but they are not magic kidney drugs to prevent kidney disease. They, if you have, But the important thing is, if you have protein in the urine above 300 milligrams per gram for albumin, then they should be used. That's where the data's been shown. In fact, interestingly enough, if you look at the original captopril study, they actually only saw a benefit with that situation and decreased kidney function. They didn't see a benefit in the, with the good kidney function. So there's much more nuance about these drugs that everybody throws all the time and when to use or not use. Now, there's another question, more complicated. ACE inhibitors and ARBs are ideal medications for protecting kidney function because they lower blood pressure, lower urinalbumin level, and increase GFR. Is that true or false? Nobody's saying anything. Martin, what's both? What's true and what's false? So I actually don't stop. That's a different question about stopping the drugs, when to stop the drugs. I could talk about that later. I won't get that distracted now. But so, again, when I have given this question to most people in the U.S., about 70, 80 percent say true. When I've done it to actually audiences visited from foreigners. They tend to say false. Uh, The answer is false. And the main reason is is that what I just was mentioning earlier, here's the glomerulus, afferent arterial, efferent arterial, blood's going this way, angiotensin II clamps down here, and therefore the pressure back here is high. When you release angiotensin II, the pressure in the glomerulus goes down, GFR goes down when you give ASARB. That's how the drug works. Why is that so important? It's so important because uh, many people, including my colleagues, give the drug, they see the creatinine go up or the GFR go down, and they stop the drug. But that's how the drug works, at least in part. It may actually work by blocking effects, other effects of angiotensin too. So I don't know if this is the actual effect or the marker of the effect, but the GFR goes down, it should go down maybe 20%, 30% at most, and stay stable but it should not keep going down. So has that been shown at all? So this was an analysis of the Renal study, which was a Losartan study done from 2000 2001 that Barry Brenner ran. The most important thing is over here. The, the 8.6 was the initial decline in GFR, and this is the rate of decline over time. The group with the biggest initial decline in GFR had the slowest Long rate of decline. In other words, the initial, the highest decline at the beginning led to the best outcomes. So there's actually some evidence for this. Now about six months or a year ago, a paper came out as saying that wasn't true. But what they did, they, they had a different study group. They looked at people with GFRs of like 60, 70, and 80 in that group. And it might say that if you have excellent GFR, that this particular thing, they, either they didn't wait long or they didn't see it. So right now, I still think considering the mechanism that we should be looking for a change in GFR, or you probably haven't given enough of the drug initially. Now, it shouldn't keep going down. It should just go down. So that's our current use of ACE-ARBs. Don't use them for prevention, necessarily. They're fine for blood pressure. I don't care. You can use it for blood pressure control, but not necessarily uniquely for kidney prevention. And don't worry. You should see a decline in, in GFR. Now, how about other mechanisms? So I'm going to spend some time on oxidative stress. This is an area where I spend most of my time, and most people, when they hear oxidative stress, uh, there's a major MIGO effect. My eyes glaze over. Uh, Frank Epstein, who some of you may or may not know Frank, was chief of nephrology and chairman of department medicine at BI and beloved for many years. He would give me uh, a look like, uh, Bob, what are you talking about? Why are you doing this? And I'd, actually, a few years before he died, he said, you know, I think you're on something here. I said, thank you. <laughs> but uh, Frank was great to talk to. He's another deep thinker. So I'm going to talk about some of the stories that have gone on in the oxidative stress world. And then I'm going to, when I finish this part, i want to go through what I think the issues are. So the bottom line is I think oxidative stress is central to many disease processes, including diabetic kidney disease. I don't think we have any treatments at the moment that work. And the reason most of them don't work is because they are much too general. They are not targeted. You know, I think that most of us are in the same area pre-cancer days when the cancer folks figured out that EGF receptor was important, in particular cancers, you got a drug that targeted the EGF receptor. You didn't target cancer in some way. And right now, most of the drugs involved in the oxidative stress were target oxidative stress, they don't target a mechanism. And it's when we get detailed to the mechanism, I think then we'll start seeing big changes. So if you're taking your alpha-lipoic acid, coenzyme Q10, whatever, vitamin A, fine. I don't think it makes a difference, but go right ahead. So so what's been tried? So NRF2 and FOXO are uh, very important transcription factors. They relate to a whole cassette of genes that turn on antioxidant genes. And there's been, the uh, biggest thing has been this bardoxolone. So this was done a few years ago. Bardoxolone was given to uh, a number of patients, big deal in the New England Journal. And oh, after 12 months, there was an increase in GFR. So everybody was going, hallelujah, uh, this is the greatest drug. We're going to cure diabetic kidney disease. So then they found out a little problem that it was causing more cardiovascular events, uh, like a year or two later so the drug disappeared, but like the zombie movies, the drug's not gone, it comes back. (laughs) So Riata just reported this in 2017, that they've been giving this to Alport's patients, and they saw an improvement of seven and 12.7, apparently their stock price is just going crazy, everybody's thrilled and everybody's happy. So I'm getting a little apoplectic about this, and I want to make a point about GFR, because I don't think a lot of my colleagues and sometimes don't get this because I watch my, my, my <laughs> nephrology colleagues um, in some of these discussions, getting all excited. They've a million filters. It ranges from eight, 700 to 800,000 filters to 1.2 million filters in each kidney when you're born. The estimated GFR, which is what this is based on, does not measure every filter. We would love to measure every filter. That would be better. It measures total filtering. Okay, so what does that mean? If you have 100 filters, 20 stop working, the other 80s work 20% harder, you get the same GFR. So I often see in my diabetic patients people going along, they're going like this with a the GFR, then suddenly, boom, and then they go along for a while in the GFR, boom. So what I think has been happening is, is that they're losing filters all the time. The other filters are making up the difference, then they say, the hell with this, And for some reason, they reset to their new level and stay there for five years. Then, the hell with this, and they go down again. But meanwhile, they've been losing filters the entire time. Every time I hear that GFR reflects pathology in some way, I want to go nuts. It doesn't reflect pathology. It reflects filtering. So if GFR went up, GFR can go up for all those hormonal reasons that you adjust GFR. But the implication from both the one-year bardoxalone study and Rayada's other study now is that GFR went up because pathology got better somehow. It actually might be worse. It's like the anti-ACE inhibitor maybe. You may be worsening. You may be increasing glomerular filtration pressures, which would maybe damage it faster. So every time I hear GFR, and there is no way in heaven for any outports patient or one year of diabetes with bardoxalone, that the pathology got better. There's no evidence for that. So I don't know what people are getting excited about here. And I don't know if this is good or bad for all parts. That's a separate situation, but not from this data, and certainly not in four weeks or 12 weeks, whatever they did. So it may be a good thing, but I don't know. So every time you see the change in GFR alone as a good thing, question about that. Now, for long-term studies, studying changes in GFR is very valuable to see decline over time. But to do in a one year or six months or something like that, that's different entirely. And most of the time in kidney disease, all we can do is stabilize. Nobody's ever shown that we can improve things. So that's Bardoxalan. NADPH oxidase has also another target that's been used. There are many isoforms of NADPH oxidase. This is involved in all sorts of critical functions, normal cellular functions, plays a major role in a lot of disease processes. Uh, this is uh, probably best known for maybe for everybody here with respect to white blood cell function. You activate uh, white blood cell, it produces the NAPH oxidase, turns on, releases superoxide and kills bacteria. But lots of normal cellular functions are part of uh, NAPH oxidase activity. And a lot of studies, there are tons of studies in the literature showing that NADPH oxidase, if you block NADPH oxidase in mice or rats or whatever, you cure diabetic kidney disease and every other disease on the planet. Um, unfortunately, this study, uh, is, I don't know if the company's still in business, GenKyotex or something, they went, came about and tried doing this, and they found uh, had no effect on anything, actually. In fact, I'm very concerned about blocking NADPH oxidase in general because, Again, it's not that targeted. Now, there are multiple isoforms, but each isoform has multiple roles. Now, if you can target a subunit or you can target a signal to it, that's a separate issue. But targeting the entire NADPH oxidase, I think, is going to be much too toxic in the long run. So this is kind of not happening at the moment. How about xanthine oxidase? Xanthine oxidase is a hot topic right now. So xanthine oxidase is part of the uric acid story. And xanthine oxidase is right here and helps last step in uric acid. Everybody knows that allopurinol blocks this. Now, uric acid, in a number of studies, has shown a strong association with uh, worse cardiovascular and renal outcomes. And there's lots of data showing these strong associations. So people say, oh, look, there's strong association, therefore this could be mechanistically important. So this is just one of many studies showing this, where uh, increased uric acid, people with high uric acid levels developed albuminuria, but there's actually many studies on this. You can look up tons of them if you wish. So this study comes out of Jocelyn from my colleague Alessandro Doria and those of us where the Pearl study, which is still going on, and the idea was to give people with diabetic in disease allopurinol to prevent. In a small study, it suggested it might work. Another small study suggested it might work. I'm a little skeptical because uh, for a lot of reasons, one that I, again, I don't know if I believe the uric acid connection. What has happened over and over in many years is that associations are not mechanism. We've known this over and over again. Homocysteine has come and gone. Uh, what do you call it, C-reactive protein. Paul Whitker at Brigham is a really good guy, but C-reactive protein is probably not being used as much. There's a variety of things that we see, associations, but are not mechanistically important. So we're going to find out. This study is still going on, and we'll see if this makes any difference. If it does, it's great, because it's a uh, well-known drug. But these came out recently. So this uh, um, perihenric group, uh, one of our collaborators in Finland, did a, a whole analysis, and you can, uh, did not find any relationship when they did a genetic epidemiologic analysis. This is, you can, it may not be impressive, press, it may be out now. Uh, and in another study, they tried to lower uric acid on blood pressure regulation, but that's been associated as well, also found no effect. So I don't know what allopurinol is going to do with kidney disease, But it might be good, it might be bad, but that's at least what's going on. Stay tuned. So this is a short list of things that predict GFR decline. Uh, You can all memorize that. We have a, uh, people have tried to put together a sort of like a uh, uh, GFR uh, calculator type thing to predict these things. Nothing's been successful yet. This effort is really important, though, because it's really hard to do kidney studies. The kidney studies take, like, five years or six years or ten years or more to really see the change. And that's been the problem. So if we knew that you were going to decline for sure, you could at least reduce the number significantly. So this is a big, important thing. But to say that anything's been definitely found, the most interesting one has come out of my colleague of, uh, um, in Boston, Andre Koleski, with TNF receptors. And those look to be pretty interesting, the TNF-alpha receptors, and they're pushing more and more on those. And There's pretty good data on that, but still, it's not there yet. So, G6PD. What is G6PD, which I've been studying it? Um, it's the main enzyme of the pentose phosphate pathway. It's required for cell survival. It's embryonically lethal, and it's the most common gene mutation in the world. Most people know it here because of hemolytic anemia and... Uh, and people say for lipid stuff. So what uh, we worked on and discovered was that a lot of the basic science of it was it's, very, it's highly regulated by growth factors. It regulates for cell growth, cell survival in multiple situations. It's critical throughout the entire biologic kingdom. And with respect to the number of studies we published on this with respect to diabetes, we found in general hyperglycemia leads to a decrease in G6PD and NADPH, increased reactive oxygen species, And these affects kidney cell problems, endothelial cell dysfunction. It's all published. Uh, This is a public beta cell, secretion and death, and a white blood cell dysfunction. Because of the importance of one particular, the G6PD produces one particular compound called NADPH, which is not NADH. NADH is the energy part of of mitochondrial function, NADPH is produced here and here. So what is NADPH so critical for? Well, NADPH is critical for many different enzyme systems, but the entire antioxidant system basically depends on NADPH. NADPH, all these enzymes in the system, glutathione reductase, glutathione peroxidase, catalase, I won't spend time going through the mechanism, but those, that's your antioxidant system, and the antioxidant system depends on NADPH. So if you have decreased G6PD you have and, and, and decreased NADPH, you basically have disabled the system. So we have, uh, we hope, again, this, paper, this paper's been taking years. We have a working on a way of increasing this. That's usually the question that comes up. And, again, in animals, at least, it's very successful. I will tell you uh, my feeling about animals, you know, there's no mice or rat, as you know, that should get die from anything. Everything's cured in mice and rats. And so... Um, so I, as, as happy as I am that what we have been doing works, uh, it doesn't mean that much yet. <laughs> so, but, so this system uh, we are excited about. I'm excited about this for another reason, is that when people look at oxidative stress, they always look at the production side of the, anti- of the oxidant system. They don't look at the antioxidant side. What we're showing here is that impaired antioxidants are as important or more important than production of oxidants. So the production of oxidants in this world is mitochondrial superoxide, NADPH oxidase, xanthine oxidase. That's the production side. The antioxidant side is problems with this system. And we're saying, if you, and I think that it's likely that helping the antioxidants has a safer profile than trying to knock down all the oxidant production because of the overlay of all the other systems they're involved with. So when we look at, this is from my favorite chemical paper. It's my, people from my lab get a headache reading this paper, but it's brilliant. She's a New Zealand person. This is I won't I'll just give you an idea. These are physiologically relevant oxygen nitrogen species, but it's superoxides in the middle here. There are many different types of oxygen radicals to so say, when we talk about oxidative stress, I'm just giving a sense of it's complicated. There's superoxide, there's hydrogen peroxide, there's nitric species. It's not oxidative stress. And just that's what the idea of the slide is here, to show you that there are multiple types, and they all have different effects, different uh, half-lifes, different uh, um, uh, 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 power in causing troubles. And then, you know, things that we need to consider when we do this, what's the half-life these? Where do they go to? What cell is produced in them? What is happening after it's produced? in the cell is produced. That's the world that we need to deal with. And so many papers just deal with oxidative stress in a general sense. So I think until we get this whole story better put together, we won't get to decent numbers. And lastly on this area, oxidative stress is not bad necessarily. So this basal level of oxidative stress is normal. If you knock the oxidative stress levels too low, cells don't grow. It's called reductive stress. So a balance of oxidative stress is important not just uh, the level of oxidative stress is bad. So this is only to say this is a complicated area, but I think we're, myself and others are working towards getting much more detail to get to a particular targeted drug that will make a difference. So how about growth factor world?
0: Question? Yeah. So you're talking about the argument as being sort of the synthesis of oxidative versus reductive interactions, and you're sort of making the point that there's increased oxidative stress. Is there a marker that that's really, uh, some cell marker of oxidative stress that you can track in, in a diabetic and predict anything?
1: So it's a little, yeah, so there, when you, so the, yes and no, because again, you're talking about particular cell types. So the issue is you look at different levels. You can you look, you look at the generation, like NADPH oxidase activity for generation. You could look at antioxidants to see what they're doing. If you're looking at the end organ effect, there are oxidized lipids, oxidized uh, sugars. So F2 isoprostane is a marker of an oxidized lipid, and that's commonly measured in urine or other wells. Uh, mal- dialdehyde is another measure. Uh, 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine for DNA is measured. Now, they have been measured in the bloodstream and everything else, but again, it may be more that you should measure it in the kidney cell or measure it in the heart cell. And what's in the bloodstream may or may not be relevant. So yes, there are many markers, and uh, they're often misused because people use one dye or another dye to measure it, and the dye is only measuring hydrogen peroxide, and they're arguing it's measuring everything. But I showed you there's superoxide, there's hydroxyl radical, so that's why it gets complicated. So the answer is yes, but they're not specific enough to say one thing. So... TGF beta is another cause of thought to be involved with things like this. So, this was a study done by my friend Kumar Sharma using a drug called perfenidone, which has been around for years for uh, pulmonary fibrosis. And at one low dose, they found an increased GFR. Higher dose, they found no problem. So, suggesting that TGF beta would be a good thing to use. But a study using anti TGF beta did not work. Now, this is only it's a small group, um, these are humans. It's 12 months, so whether or not that's enough may or may not be a difference, but there's lots of data suggesting that TGF-beta is causing fibrosis. It's sounding like a tale of woe here, huh? Like uh, (laughs) nothing's working. Yes, this is a, it's kind of there. Um, Now, this is an interesting area are the spironolactone area. This is the uh, aldosterone inhibitors. So aldosterone, uh, as you know, involves the sodium-potassium regulation, but aldosterone has a number of other effects. These effects include all these inflammatory effects. In the cardiovascular world, spironolactone is used now much more often, and in the kidney world, it's becoming very much more common because of concerns of using ACEs and ARBs in combination. So the spironolactone story is a very interesting one, and um, maybe, and lots of people said, the uh, chronically stimulated aldosterone is causing a lot of troubles. Now... Spironolactone, as you know, men can't get in touch with their feminine side, so there's a lot of other companies actually looking to come up with other more specific spironolactone-type drugs. The one that's farthest along um, uh, is a drug called um, finerenone, And this finerenone did show, as shown promise, in lowering albumin. I said albumin's a soft call. But there are two big studies going on now, and There are probably I don't know eight or ten companies working on newer spironolactone versions. I mentioned finerenone only because it's probably going to hit the market the soonest. Uh, the two big studies are called Figaro and Fidelio. If you're into <laughs> Beethoven, and I think drug companies spend more time on names than mechanism, but um, so uh, these are uh, you can read about them if you wish. They're, they're come, it's some years from it's twenty twenty I think or so by. 2019 and 2020, this will be out. But I think they're probably going to hit the market, and they probably are going to be useful. So all my tale of woe, these probably will be useful because the spironolactone data looks pretty good so far. Now, they haven't done, there's not a huge ACE spironolactone study done yet. Maybe when that comes out, we'll see what, uh, what benefit of that. So I would keep these in mind for known as a reasonable possibility. Another one that's hit the market is called pentoxifiline. And pentoxifiline is a a smooth muscle relaxant. It has anti-inflammatory effects. It has um, phosphodiesterase inhibitor effects, and this is one study that, but it wasn't, um, that suggested it was good uh, for um, albuminuria again and and slowing GFR decline, but it wasn't uh, double-blinded, it wasn't controlled, so we don't know. So it's interesting, though. So that may be coming along and there are these studies. Everybody who has a drug uh, that looks like it could do something is throwing it to see if it can cause improved kidney function. And so these have all mostly are about albuminuria. I won't go into mechanisms of these, other than if people who know about them you can or you can ask me later. So, but again, they're like albuminuria, which is a soft outcome. So I want to finish up with SGLT2s since that's been such a hot topic here, things like this. So, and SGLT2s uh, work probably in this, somewhere in this world I've mentioned glomerular hypertension, glomerular capillary filtration again, and TG feedback. So SGLT2s, remember for those, the sodium glucose link cotransporter is found in the proximal tubule, uh, there's, and the, there's SGLT2 and SGLT1, SGLT2 is the, about 90% of it. It's sodium-linked glucose co-transporters. Most of the glucose transporters in our body are not linked to glucose, except in two areas, the intestine and the kidney, where there's a sodium-linked glucose, uh, co- sodium-linked glucose transporter. <clears throat> so years ago, I mean, in the Latin, I remember years ago as was a fellow, um, we used... Um, uh, but uh, I'm blocking the name right now, um, to block, uh, I'll think of it in a sec, it would block all sodium link glucose transport uh, in the lab for mice and rats, just as a study experiment, physiologic experiment. And Ralph DeFranco and company uh, came up with, you know, the notion of thinking about, well, why don't we just do this clinically and get rid of the glucose from the body? So that's where these came from. And so now there are a number on the market, ampiglifosin, dapagliflozin. Chemical uh, flows in, and pick a that you like. So this was the EMPA-REG study, and for those of you who don't know this, the EMPA-REG study came out in the twenty fifteen, I think the first one, twenty six, uh, first one. And so um, in EMPA-REG, they gave SGLT two inhibitor about four thousand people, something like that. Anyway, and they were, it was a cardiovascular study, and they looked, for, and the intent of the study was to show non-inferiority. It was not intended to show benefit because they just wanted to show that this drug not only improved A1C, it didn't kill you. And so, uh, (laughs) which is always a good thing. But um, what happened was, and um, was that not only did it not kill you, but the cardiovascular events were reduced by 30%, including death. So no diabetes drug, including metformin, had ever shown uh, a cardiovascular benefit. So this was like, needless to say, Beringer and folks there were thrilled, to say the least. And uh, that was uh, apparently um, Silvio Inzuki, when he presented this, at the European Diabetes Meeting got like a standing ovation. I don't know if that happens at meetings, but when they showed him the data, but it's really peculiar this data, and the data is kind of similar to what I'll show you here in a sec. But the the effect was seen within one month. The cardiovascular effect, it's like like as soon as you start this drug, your heart's protected in theory, and when you stop the drug, the effect goes away. <clears throat> so, from a cardiovascular standpoint, that's one of the questions right now: is why is it doing this, or is it doing this? But why is it doing this? Now. The CANVAS study, which is a canaglifosin study, was just reported at the ADA, and they found similar but less dramatic findings. They found like maybe 14% change, but it was similar. So it was the same general idea. So none of these were kidney studies, but they both are doing sub-kidney studies. But they reported this in the journal as a kidney study now. They looked at their population and said, what's happening to kidney disease? So what they found was the... uh, There's a decline with the EMPA group. That's what those two things down at different doses. And then it stays pretty stable for the next five years or so, four years. Whereas the other group, it decreased if you're not on the SGLT2. So this got many of my colleagues and everybody else thrilled. We got a kidney drug. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Fantastic news. So first of all, a couple things about this. Um, this is pretty normal kidney function, number one. These are not people with kidney disease. Now, when they subcategorized the lower levels, it did look like it was protective, but the numbers are really small. And a few numbers here or there could have twisted it the other way. Canvas saw similar results maybe, but again, numbers are small. There is a study going on now, Credence, which is a kidney study, which is now done in two or three years. So we will get some answer on this like all these names, cambits, credence, whatever. (laughs) The, um, The other thing about this is, remember a long time ago in this talk, I mentioned our goal in life is to get to a GFR of less than 60? Everybody's goal in life is to do that. So notice what happens to the SGLT2 group. They don't decline at all. So what they're telling me is that this drug is so amazing, it prevents... The normal rate of decline in GFR. So now I'm I'm thinking, really, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, really. So <laughs> so then I think gets back to my GFR discussion earlier. Is this changing GFR now in a different way than we think? Now their argument is here. Their argument is it's acting like an ACE inhibitor. It's based on uh, this, what's called TG feedback. Their argument, done on an eight-week setting on type one diabetic patients, very well done study, believable study. And I can tell you, I wrote the uh, commentary for circulation on this, so I know the study well. And then Barry Brenner was yelling at me that I bought them lying in the sinker. I said, no, I didn't. But anyway, what they um, so what TG feedback to explain? Particles are coming through the filters. So you filter here, and then particles end up over on the downstream part of the nephron. When it gets there, there's a sensor called the macula densa, and the macula densa is measuring the number of particles. So if there are a few particles there, it says, wait a minute, we need more filtering. So the glomerulus starts filtering more. If there are a lot of particles there, it says, oh, we have plenty of particles, the filtering goes down. So that's TG feedback. So their argument in this eight-week study, what they say they showed, was that by blocking SGLT2, they sent a ton more particles downstream and the filtering in the glomerulus went down and that's why everything is better. Now in their eight-week study that in the type 1 patients, that might have been the case. I don't know if that's the case in the long term and actually Barry Brenner from the play, he doesn't believe that. He doesn't doubt the drug might work, but he doesn't believe that's really the mechanism. And I'm wondering if the, stabilizing is actually causing an opposite effect in the long run, this would become self-limited at some point, and there may be other hormonal effects downstream. So, this is at least their argument. Now, in addition, there are much other things that have been thrown out here, including the idea that it's affecting ketone body formation, things like this that may be involved, that may be why cardiac function, things like this that are better. But I am pretty skeptical about this whole thing. So, it may be renal protective, but what is the mechanism? What? Does it really prevent the normal rate of decline? I don't buy that. I just don't buy it's going to be great pouring glucose down your nephrine for 20 years. So I'm afraid that I'll, if I'll to find out if I'm right or wrong about my concerns will be 10 years from now. Because I think, so I know what I do with the cells in the lab. I take cells, I pour glucose on top of them, bad things happen. Now, this is pouring you know, a gram of glucose a day down your kidneys forever. So if that's good for 20 or 30 years, we'll find out, because everybody's doing it right now. So I hope it's good. We'll find out from credence. So there are many mechanisms to finish up here. I said that can be looked at. This is a review. I'll just skip this. You could look at that. But it said my thoughts here are as follows. So there's multiple interacting pathways that are involved here. The drugs aimed at these targets, I think, will have unacceptable side effects so I think that they have to be better targeted than they are now. Mouse models, I said, are not sufficient for diabetic kidney disease. They're All, all are bad. None of them are accurate. And uh, I do it anyway. I've often started my research talks by going, I don't believe any of the data I'm going to tell you uh, <laughs> that I explained. I believe it for the mouse. I don't know if I believe it for anything else. But um, markers are not targets. And SGLT2 are intriguing and potentially very important, but I don't know if it's going to be safe. Well, what's needed so this gets back to the biopsy story. I think this is, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a NIH initiative at this point to try to get uh, tissue, and it's a whole new technique, and the idea is should we be biopsying many more people to actually know the mechanisms along the way, or are there other ways to get tissue that makes a sense? We need to g- discovery very specific, relevant targets. I, I'm doing it with Julius Galso at the Brigham. We do a lot of systems biology analyses And uh, I think I didn't talk about those today, but need interacting pathways to understand this in more detail. And I think we need to know different times. I don't think initiation is the same as five years, 10 years, and 15 years later. And those are the kind of things we know. I think bringing this together, we'll be able to find targeted drugs, but I think we're still on the way to getting there. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, uh, science, basic science, clinical science. Um, we'll have to take some questions. I, I start, start off with a simple question. Um, in the empoglyphosin study, what, what were the effects on hypertension? Because the graph looks very like what, you, what we see with, um, with control of, of blood
1: pressure on, on GFR. Right. So the reason I think SGLT2s are going to be used so much, even by people that you should worry about, like with uh, I'm, I'm really concerned. It, it, it's good on hypertension; it lowers blood pressure. Uh, it also loses, causes weight loss. And my concern is that, again, I don't know if it's safe in chronic kidney disease patients. I'm really concerned about primary care doctors, because a lot of primary care doctors don't calculate GFR. And you can have, you know, you could have a creatinine of 1.4 in a 75-year-old uh, woman, and her GFR is 30 or 25. And uh, we need figure, and there's, they'll be started on SGLT2, and uh, because it's good for weight loss, it's good for blood pressure, it's good for diabetes control. It's new, and I don't know if that's going to be good. So it's a very enticing drug because it does do those things. So the argument was made maybe these effects are all blood pressure related, but you know it lowers it about five millimeters of mercury. So that's now in a population sense that's huge, in a particular person sense. I don't know if that is huge or not. So, but the cardiovascular events cannot be, or kidney events, those kind of flattening and everything else, I think is something else because we can, we plenty of drugs. We get blood pressure, and we don't see, you know, the cardiovascular disease suddenly getting brilliantly better, and and the uh, kidney function just stop getting worse. Thank you. Rich? That was a great talk. You started off with the epidemiology slide, which really showed that most dialysis was occurring in populations with type 2 diabetes. Right. And the question, really, when you get to mechanism, is even if the driver is the same, high glucose, do you think the mechanisms of kidney disease in type 1 and type 2 diabetes are ultimately the same or amenable to the same treatments? Right. So, I mean, that's a very important question if they are. Again, it gets, I think we need. I don't have the answer. I mean, right now we treat them as the same because we don't have much more we can do. I think exactly what I was saying at the end, I th- we need, if I were controlling this, I would move everybody into doing some kind of human study analysis. i don't want to stop rat studies or mouse studies except that's all we can do. You know, it's the light and the keys business. Um, everybody know that? No, everyone's looking at me. It's like a uh, uh, guy's out in the middle of the street uh, at night and he's looking over and he's looking like this and somebody comes by. I so said, what do you do? I dropped my keys. And he said, okay, let me help. And he's looking, he's looking he said, why? I don't find them. And he said, where'd you drop them? I said, I dropped them over there. And he said, well, why aren't we over there? He said, the light's better right here.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I think most research is pretty much that right now, and I think that's what most of them, even my mouse works. I view my, the mouse work I do as mechanistically, potentially relevant to point in a direction, but I really can't say, until we get to a human study, what's, that, what's the really actual relationship. So I don't know.
0: Really. So unfortunately, humans are outbred, not mice. That's right. And, uh, but one, one of the questions that came up, as I was also relative to epidemiology, is you showed all these different potential contributing pathways. Different ethnic populations are different pathways more important than others.
1: So that may be true. You know, the, the, uh, there's not enough data on that. The most data probably comes for African-Americans with respect to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway. So African-Americans tend not to make nitric oxide and respond in the same way. So there's been comments that, um, that you shouldn't give, like, a to African-Americans, but whether operating, but whatever, we're pretty mixed in this world. So it's silly not to do that. You should try it no matter what. And But uh, Joe Skouser is Chairman of the Department of Medicine at the uh, – Brigham, he came with using this notion about the nitric oxide, actually came up with a uh, c- combination of uh, hydralazine and isodil, I think, but as a pill for heart failure patients in African-American populations, and at least in his study showed that they did better when they could provide nitric oxide to that population through the, uh, I- the isosorbide um, that was breaking down. The hydralazine was there to make it last longer. And so... That's at least one area that appears to be different. The problem again is because of the mixing. The question is: is at any given time, any given person, you really have to do a personal analysis to know if that mechanism was relevant for that person. But yes, I think there are going to be differences.
0: Martin, Uh, I'm sorry, Rich. And in designing these human trials, (laughs) where in the life cycle of the human do you think you think we ought to put it? prevention,
1: treatment. Right. So I think, you know, in the human trials, we have to go, you know, take people, you know, a di- we have to start with diabetes and take some number of population, um, hopefully with markers that we know who to go after and say, okay, you're at high risk, you're at low risk. Start with them. Start with them, you know, a couple years after the that we know it started, and then probably every three to five years. I think things are changing. Uh so, you know, when we look at genetic analysis, um, there's all, the, oh, and then we talk about the epigenetic effects. So Mike did another very interesting study. He, diabetes. he has, a, like, five pairs of identical twins that are discordant for diabetes. And he did, so he has not for 25 years out now, and he took skin biopsies from the two of them and looked at gene expression and they're identical twins. Gene expression was entirely different. And so... You know, you're talking about, so I'm saying that's, those are identical twins, and clearly it's all the epigenetic effects. So I think unless you have some kind of time course of effects pre and somewhere along the way, we're, we're not going to be getting the right story. Do you, know, you know the answer to that? <laughs> yeah, the loop diuretics are no more protective than, although if you remember, it was uh, uh, in acute renal failure, that was Frank's I don't know if you remember, the years ago It <clears throat> was an acute kidney injury and ischemic injury there was a time where people wanted to give the loop to protect the kidney by decreasing the work of the kidney by blocking sodium potassium ATPase I mean, blocking the sodium K2-chloric transporter so, so it wouldn't be using so much energy. That turned out not to work as well. But uh, your point, the question is, how many particles are you delivering? You, they may argue you're delivering many more particles with SGLT2 inhibitor than you are with a sodium with a loop inhibitor, loop transporter. But you're right, it doesn't, there are no more nephroprotective than anything else we know of. So, oh.
0: next one. Now,
1: so you mentioned uh, G6PD as a target or possible target. Um, do people with G6PD deficiency have higher rates of kidney disease? Is that something you... So I have a whole talk on... Uh, <laughs> that's a whole other long... Mis- so uh, I don't I, I know if people know Gordon Weir, uh, but um, you know Gordon. Yeah. Gordon's a wonderful, famous guy in the endocrine world. So usually at the end of my research talks, Gordon, I, go, I have a slide that goes now, What about all those G6PD-deficient people? And um, so uh, the answer is, I've been working over the years trying to get a big study done, but the answer is in small studies they have more diabetes, and there's a variety of studies out of the Middle East and South America showing people with low G6PD have higher rates of diabetes. One of the papers we've published is about uh, development of beta cell survival based on G6PD And it turns out beta cells have very low levels of antioxidants, including G6PD. And when the high glucose goes up, G6PD goes down, the beta cell survival, beta cell function, all decreases. And when we published this a few years back, I thought, oh, I discovered something entirely new. Then it turned out there was a guy named Jürgen Stenke who published a paper about the pentose phosphate pathway and insulin secretion in 1978 from the Jocelyn Diabetes Center. So I said, <laughs> he didn't go in G6P. I said, oh, look at that. So, of course, I studied him. But the, uh, uh, so the answer is for diabetes, yes. I've been trying to do, in various parts of the world, I've been trying in Kuwait and Singapore, trying to find partners has always been difficult because you get started and people lose interest or things like this. So I have to do it somewhere where there's enough population to do it, but the answer is probably yes. But we don't. We don't have enough data yet. I think it's not, people are not going off the edge of it. I think it's a major predisposing factor and then something else occurs.